if you know me, as I think some of you do, um, you know that uh, preaching God's word on a daily, uh, a weekly basis like this is truly the highlight of my week. Uh, and it, it really should be the, God's word really should be the, the center of our church. Um, and I'm reminded of this this morning as I think my sermons are now numbered, and I'm sensing the end of them here as, as, um, as we uh, prepare to transition and as you prepare to welcome a new pastor. Um, I am reminded of how much I will miss proclaiming God's word to you every Sunday. Um, There's nothing more important than the word of God, and I hope that uh, in my time here you have seen, this has nothing to do with me, but I hope that you have seen that God's word um, should be first place in his church among his bride, and that it matters and that it gives us life so that we can live. Well, that was an aside, uh, or more of an introduction, uh, as I, I, I felt that I needed to say something in regards to preaching and its importance. This morning, believe it or not, we are going to finish the book of Genesis. We uh, have much to cover still. And uh, we are going to be looking at Genesis 42 through 50. So as Danae said a minute ago, I hope we all are people of the sword. And if you uh, have not been in the habit of bringing your Bible to church before, hopefully through these sermons you have found it uncomfortable not to be here in church without your Bible because we are people of the word, are we not? And we are eating up as hungry uh, feasters upon God's word. We are eating up every bit of it so that we might walk away with the words of life. Genesis 42 through 50, we are going to be looking at what I'm calling part two of God being with Joseph. We have much to cover, so I'm not going to waste any time, but get right down into it uh, to focus on where we left off from last week. Last week, we covered uh, the first half of the story of Joseph, and we saw, very specifically, God's providential hand at work. And that word, providential, is key. While Joseph is sold into slavery and at one point even thrown into prison, God is with Joseph. Remember, that's the theme that, that keeps coming again and again. No matter how many bad things happen, we keep hearing this. Repeatedly, God was with Joseph. God was with him again and again, no matter what hardship he went through. In fact, God, as we saw, God had a purpose in all of this, didn't he? He had a purpose in Joseph's life as he raised Joseph up through this hardship so that he became second in command next to Pharaoh himself. This would have been unthinkable. He is not even an Egyptian. And here's Joseph, second in command to Pharaoh himself. This week, 
this morning, we're going to see how God's purpose is going to continue now, not just for Egypt, but specifically for, ja- for Joseph's own father, Jacob, and the covenant promises that God made to Abraham. So, uh, B in Genesis 42, we're going to look at some of these chapters. I'm not going to cover everything. Remember, this is a kind of a flyover of the passage. If you, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you, in the, in the chair in front of you. So uh, follow along with us. Genesis 42, 42 uh, through 50. At the start of Genesis 42, we see a big problem, don't we? It's a big problem. There's no food. And no food means what? There's no life. If Jacob's family and his entire herds, all of his possessions, including all of the animals that they are dependent upon, if they are to, to live, they must find food. That is how bad things are becoming. So Jacob tells his sons to go into Egypt because unlike Canaan, Egypt has grain and it's for sale. However, Jacob does something very interesting. He sends all of his sons except one, Benjamin, who was Joseph's. If you remember back to some of those small details, Benjamin was Joseph's full brother. No doubt because Jacob loved him much like he loved Joseph, uh, Joseph. And he is not about to risk something happening to Benjamin, too. After many years of separation, Joseph's, Joseph's brothers come face to face with the brother that they sold into slavery. But here's the catch. They don't know it, do they? They don't have a clue. They don't realize that the brother they wanted to kill The brother they sold as a slave. God has now raised up to be the most powerful man in Egypt next to Pharaoh. In Genesis 42.6, we see Joseph's dream when he was but 17 years old now come true. Isn't this remarkable? The text says Joseph's brothers came, and what did they do? They bowed. They bowed themselves before Joseph with their faces to the ground. (laughs) What a sight this must have been. Do you see God's providence at work? So how will this encounter play out? While the brothers do not recognize Joseph, keep in mind, Joseph would have looked and talked like an Egyptian. Very much so. They don't recognize him. Joseph sure recognizes them. But notice how he responds. Joseph pretends that they are strangers. And he, he, the text says he, he spoke roughly to them even accusing them of being spies. He says to them, you are spies. You've come to spy out the land to see its weakness. By the way, pay attention as we move through this story. Pay attention to how Joseph is constantly, repeatedly 
testing his brothers. He's testing them. Why? Why is he he testing them? He's testing them in order to see if they are the same evil, wicked, selfish individuals, or perhaps if they've changed. Instead of what, what we're going to find out, we're going to see something very different here. What we're going to find out and discover is that his brothers have changed. Whether they realize it or not, they've changed. Instead of being dishonest, they actually are honest throughout this story. Sometimes too honest. Instead of caring only for themselves, they're actually looking out for one another. At times, they are even willing to put their own lives on the line for each other. This should strike you. I mean, just previously in the text, though much time went by, previously in the text, these are the same brothers who were going to kill Joseph. This is an important sign to Joseph that reconciliation is possible. And that through this fire that God is putting these brothers through, God is actually refining their character, changing them. Now back to the story. Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. He he knows what he's doing here. His brothers, of course, panic, as we would, And not only do they swear they are not spies, but they tell Joseph all the details. Notice their honesty here. They tell him all the details about their family, about their father Jacob and their youngest brother Benjamin, who was left behind. No doubt this was a mistake they would later regret. For Joseph puts them to the test. If they return, he says, with their youngest brother Benjamin then Joseph will know that they're telling the truth and they're not spies. Quite a a plan. Meanwhile, Joseph will keep back one of them, Simeon, as a guarantee that the rest of them will return with Benjamin. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the midst of this test, the brothers begin to feel the guilt of what they did so long ago to Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. They don't know. But in their conversation with one another, they can't help but think of what they've done. If this is now coming back upon their heads. They say in Genesis 42, verse 21, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And then suddenly we're, a window opens into the, the story that we weren't, we weren't privy to before. Notice what they say next about what occurred so long ago. They say, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. And we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon So Joseph's brothers feel 
that they are now receiving back the punishment they deserve for what they did to their brother as he begged them for his life. They don't realize that Joseph, though, has an interpreter standing by. And Joseph can understand every word they're saying. Joseph, the text says that Joseph, when he heard this, as he is going to do often in the story, the man wept. He wept. This won't be the last time that Joseph weeps. I think it shows that Joseph truly loved his family despite the the wickedness they had done to him. We see something of the character of this man. When the brothers return to their father Jacob, things get much worse. Much worse. Not only is Simeon a prisoner in Egypt now, and not only must Benjamin return to Egypt, but when they open their sacks, remember this is the food that they need and are dependent upon, when they open their sacks before their father, each man's money falls out. Must have gasped at that moment. Joseph had, of course, we know, behind the scenes here, Joseph had put this money back into their sacks and it was now having the intended effect for his brothers were now terrified, realizing that what might come of them, and not just them, but Simeon, and if, if Joseph thought that they had stolen this money back. Jacob, seeing this, you could imagine as a father who's already lost one, potentially two now, of his sons. He is distraught, telling them how, how they have bereaved him of his children. First Joseph, now Simeon. So there is no way he is about to send Benjamin. There's no way. But in Genesis 43, the famine becomes even more severe. And Jacob knows he has to do something or they are going to die. After Judah swears to protect Benjamin, swears, Jacob reluctantly sends Benjamin back to Egypt with the brothers. And equipping his sons with gifts for this, this mighty ruler of Egypt, Jacob sends his sons back saying, this is, this is Genesis 43, 14. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. When they return... Joseph meets them, and once again, these brothers bow down before Joseph. Just as, just as Joseph's dreams foretold. But when Joseph saw Benjamin, his own brother, the son of his mother, he blessed him. This must have looked so strange to everyone. 
he comes up to Benjamin and he blesses him, saying, God, be gracious to you, my son. But Joseph, as you can see here, growing warm with compassion, could not contain himself. Couldn't contain himself. So he, he, he ran out of the room and he, he wept once again. Surely, surely Joseph must have loved his brother Benjamin. He must have loved him. That day, Joseph, though, he, he hosts his brothers for dinner. And as was custom, they're, they're seated, notice how, they're seated from oldest to youngest. But the most peculiar thing happens. Benjamin, who's the youngest, receives five times the amount of food from Joseph than all the rest. Five times. In Genesis 44, Joseph will put his brothers to the test once more. As he sends them away, he puts their money back in their sack. You noticing the pattern? But this time, he does something else. Something there's, there's no returning from this. Joseph does something else. He, he puts his own silver cup into the sack of Benjamin. Talk about giving a death sentence. Joseph is clearly setting them up, isn't he? Having only traveled a short distance, the brothers are suddenly surrounded And they're told that they are in deep trouble this time. They're in trouble because they have stolen from Joseph. Shocked by this news, they swear that whoever has the silver cup shall die. As you can imagine, when the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack, They're doomed. What are they to do? They they must have felt as if not only they had failed their father, but that their own lives were now over. You can feel the agony, for the text says, this is Genesis 44, verse 13, it says that when the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, they they tore their clothes. They ripped them apart. Which would have been a, a sign of just grief and agony. As if someone has died. Little did they know that this was Joseph's plan all along. When they're brought back to Joseph, the brothers, they are just overwhelmed with grief. They're overwhelmed with grief. And they, they declare themselves to be Joseph's servants now. Take our lives. We are your servants now. Again, bringing to fulfillment the dream that Joseph had so long ago. Joseph, though, says, no, he will only keep Benjamin back. Just Benjamin. And at this moment, 
we see something that never would have happened before. Judah, who previously was part of this whole plan to get rid of Joseph, Judah steps forward. You know what he does? He says, no, take me instead. I beg you. This is a very different Judah than the one Joseph used to know, isn't it? It's at this point that Joseph, he cannot control himself any longer. Telling everyone to leave the room, Joseph, finally, he bursts. He weeps aloud. In fact, the text describes his weeping as so loud that the, that the whole house of, of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they all heard it. And this would have been very uncharacteristic for any Egyptian to do such a thing. Joseph is crying out. What does he say? I am Joseph. I am Joseph. Is my father, Jacob, still alive? Can you imagine what a shock this must have been to his brothers? Joseph? This isn't, this is not possible. But it was Joseph. If we're careful, biblical interpreters here, we'll notice that the text doesn't just communicate surprise, does it? In fact, the surprise is actually accompanied by horror and terror. That's what, in Hebrew, that's what the, the terms are getting at. They were horrified. Terrified. After all, the most powerful man in the land is the very one they tried to kill. You see why they're terrified now? Why they they are trembling in fear? Joseph, though, he relieves their fears. He pulls his brothers near to him. And he says to them, I am, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. People, what Joseph says next, it's, it's unbelievable on so many levels. I, I think I could spend five more sermons just on what he says next. Genesis 45, verse 5. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And then in Genesis 45, Joseph sees the bigger picture of what God has been up to this entire time. 
Look at the text. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. A remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. And listen to this. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Do you understand what Joseph is is asserting here? In case you missed it, I want to skip ahead to Genesis 50, verses 19 through 21. Genesis 50, verses 19 through 21. Jacob, let me just give you a little context here. Jacob has just died. After seeing the son he thought he'd never see, Joseph. And now his brothers are afraid again. They're afraid that Joseph is going to become angry with them and take his revenge. But but notice what Joseph says to them, particularly about God. Genesis 50, 19 through 20. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There it is again. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Wait a minute. Just wait a minute. I mean, try to wrap your mind around this. What Joseph's brothers did to Joseph was, first of all, their own choice, their decision. And not only did they do it, but they did it out of the desire of their own heart. And not only that, but the very thing that they did out of the desire of their own heart was evil and wicked. But here it says in both of these passages that the very thing they did, the very very wickedness they performed from, from their heart was the very will of God from the beginning. Oh, sure, they meant it for evil. 
But God meant it for good. Yes, they thought they were in control. And this was their doing alone. But as it turns out, it was not they who sent Joseph to Egypt. It was God. People, do you you have a category for this in your theology? Do you have a category in your mind for divine sovereignty? Do you? I mean, do you really believe it? Not just... I'm not just referring to any understanding of divine sovereignty, but meticulous, exhaustive divine sovereignty here. I can't tell you how many times I have met Christians who do not. They don't. In our age of rugged individualism and independence, they can't stand the thought of God who is totally sovereign, in control, determining all things for the glory of His name. Yes, even wicked evil things. People, I don't know how to say it. It's right here in the text. This is exactly what we see. There's no way around it. The text is so clear. Now keep in mind, this, I don't have, I wish I had time. Don't. Wish I had time, but We don't have time to to go into all the the details and intricacies of of how divine sovereignty and human responsibility works. Maybe we can discuss that another time. But what I want you to see here also is that this in no way, notice in the text, this in no way undermines human responsibility and culpability, does it? As mysterious as that may seem, No, Joseph's brothers actually committed evil against their own brother. And not only did they choose to do it, don't miss this, they desired to do it. In other words, this this evil was the desire of their own heart, their own character. They are still held accountable for their very wicked actions. It's not compromised. And yet, what the Bible tells us again and again is that even the schemes of the wicked, though they do them of their own hearts, even these do not fall outside of God's predestined plan. You see, Genesis 45 and 50, it doesn't present God, don't don't miss this, it doesn't present God as if he's some type of Johnny-come-lately, does it? It's not as if 
Joseph's brothers commit wickedness, and then God comes along after the fact and realizes, hey, you know what? I bet I could somehow use this work that they've done to figure out my divine plan after all. That's not what happens here. There's no way that's what happens here. That's not what the text describes. Instead, it says this whole affair was God's plan from the beginning. God did not work out his plan. We've, 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 we've learned this before, haven't we? When we looked at Philippians. God does not work out his plan despite the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers. No, God worked out his plan through these wicked men. Astonishing, isn't it? Isn't this what we see throughout the Bible? Did you notice that text we read earlier in the service? Consider what I think, at least, is one of the best examples of all, the cross of Jesus Christ. Can you... You think that that what Joseph's brothers did was wicked, right? Could you imagine the wickedness involved in putting the Son of God to death, crucifying Him. Can you think of a greater evil than that? I can't. I can't. Listen, this is Acts 4. This is the church in Acts 4 praying to God celebrating, rejoicing, but also praying for the lost. Listen to what they say in this prayer. They lifted their voices together to God and said, notice the title, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Starting to sound like Job. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? Sound familiar? The the raging of evil brothers against Joseph. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord. And against his anointed. Sounds like this is the desire of their heart. Raging against the Lord. But notice what they say next. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what Ever your hand and your plan, what? Had predestined to take place. 
Isn't this the beauty of the cross? The very thing that looks like defeat all along is God's plan. The Gentiles, notice, they really did rage. And the, ple- the people, they really did plot. And the rulers really did set themselves against the Lord's anointed. And yet, they only did whatever God's hand said. They didn't know it. Whatever God's plan, the text says, had predestined to take place. You know, so many people are so offended at the sovereignty of God. Fine. You you don't want divine sovereignty? Then no cross either. No cross. That's what Acts 4 is getting at. It's only because God had predestined His own Son's crucifixion that we can stand here justified in His sight. It's the only reason. It's nothing to do with us. We were raging against Him. Sovereignty, people. Sovereignty is so many people think sometimes it doesn't put a damper on the Christian life. It's the very reason why we can celebrate this gospel. Joseph understood this. He understood, looking back at everything that happened, that all of this, including his brother's evil actions, was God's predestined plan. Now he's beginning to see, isn't this so true in our life sometimes? We don't see it. And then suddenly the clouds open, and Joseph, he sees it so clearly now. Everything was orchestrated by God, which is why he can say to his brothers, it must have been shocking for them to hear this. You didn't send me here. God did. God did it, he tells them. Of course, the rest of the story tells us that this is no cruel, random, purposeless sovereignty. What we are dealing with here is a divine sovereignty that functions with a divine purpose. It's not arbitrary. There's a purpose in mind. That is what we call divine providence. Sovereignty, purpose. You put those two together and you have biblical providence that we've been singing about this morning. This is exactly the point Joseph makes in Genesis 45 and Genesis 50. Notice the purpose. God predestined these evil deeds so that Joseph, listen to this, don't miss this, 
What's going on here? Why is this happening? What is the purpose behind all these evil events? What's the purpose here? This is it. God brought about these events so that Joseph would be in Egypt. He would interpret Pharaoh's dreams, be raised up into power, save the grain during the years of famine, and as a result, not only be reunited with his own father, Jacob, and reconciled with his own brothers, but ultimately preserve the lineage through which the covenant blessings God made to Abraham were to come to all the earth one day in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't you see this? Do you see all of this here? Don't you see, as Joseph did, how, as we just sung, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. This is the plan that God has had, and He is now working it out. And Joseph's eyes are open just for a moment to a slice of it. And people here, we sit, seeing all of it in light of the cross. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, came totally dependent upon the survival of Jacob. love how the book of Genesis ends. Joseph is about to die. So he turns to his brothers and he says, you can hear the faith, can't you? The Hebrews talks about. He says, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now here is a man who has faith in God's promises. And here is a man, because God was with him, he can say to his brothers and to the people of God, God will be with you. Isn't this amazing? Not only does Joseph recognize the absolute sovereignty of God in his life, but Joseph knows that this sovereign God is the one who has been with him from the start. And so Joseph can conclude that the God who has been with him shall now be with his people even after he dies. He will visit you, he says. He will bring you into the land that that God promised to Abraham so that his covenant promises to Abraham will come true. The word of the covenant-making God will prove true. That is what divine sovereignty is all about. How are we to live in light of the story of Joseph? How are we to live in light of what we have learned about God this morning? How do you you leave these doors, go out into your workplace, your families, 
the trials that come upon you. How do you do that? How does... How do you live in light of all these truths? I just want to mention two things. First of all, when adversity and trials come, and they will, you know they will, we must remember that God is in control. It's not going to feel like it, is it? But his word says so. And we must trust in his providential hand no matter what. These are not random chance happenings. Nor has evil somehow thwarted God's plan or overcome his goodwill as if he's trying to scrap around for a plan B. No. Even the evil that is sometimes thrust upon us by God. And even when God doesn't tell us in the moment what this is all about, he didn't tell Joseph, He didn't didn't make it known to him right away. In those moments, we trust that this too, as awful as it feels, is part of God's plan to bring glory to his name and to do us good. So we, we must say with someone like Job, I know that you, God, can do all things and then no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There's one other thing I want to point out. We must remember that our God is faithful to his covenant promises, and he will bring them to fulfillment. And it's because of that that we are to live by faith in those promises until he returns. I often listen to the Bible either when I'm exercising in the morning or when I'm driving in the car. This morning, I didn't turn it on, and Georgia in the back seats reminded me, Dad, aren't you going to put it on? Reminded me that this is something that's important. And as we were, we were driving, we were listening to Hebrews, and when I came to Hebrews 11, It's just unbelievable. We read about all these men, and women, too, who trusted God. And the text says that some of them were even even sawn in two. Keep in mind that every one of these individuals that Hebrews talks about, they did not live to see the promises fulfilled in their day, let alone Jesus come. And here we are, as Fellowship Baptist Church, on this side of the cross. If these men and women in ages past trusted in God's promises long before Jesus ever came, how much more should we, who have our faith rooted in an empty grave, Believe in those promises, even during tough times. And we've seen tough times, haven't we? We might feel like giving up. You might feel like throwing in the towel. But I would leave you this morning and say, remember, 
Our God is so big. And he is so faithful to do exactly as he has promised. And he has given us every reassurance, every reassurance, by giving up his own son for the forgiveness of of your sins. So in the midst of our trouble and hardship, we look at the right hand of God. Well, we see Jesus sitting, making intercession on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, I'm afraid that I too often live as if you are not sovereign. And though I may say it with my lips, it is so much harder to to do with my actions. Lord, in light of this morning's text, we pray as the early church did in Acts 4, Sovereign Lord. And we know, Lord, that it's only because of your providence that we stand here today justified in Jesus Christ, covered in his blood, blood that was spilt at the hands of wicked men in order to bring about your predestined plan. While we may feel out of control, we know that you are not. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.